0: Hey acquired listeners, Ben here. You'll notice for the first eight minutes or so of the episode, my audio quality isn't the greatest. But bear with us, it'll be crystal clear for most of the episode. Thanks. Is ocular and occluded from the same route?
1: Uh I don't know.
0: I don't know either. Anyway, yeah, that, that, with that, it. Feels, I, I, that feels that feels right. I've, because I think that's our logo, your... right? Is it? It's an eye, yeah. Yeah, all right. I can I concede. Welcome back to episode 35 of Acquired, the podcast about technology, acquisitions, and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm
1: David Rosenthal.
0: And we are your hosts. Today's episode, we are covering the Facebook acquisition of Oculus, a uh, much requested episode by uh, a lot of our listeners in uh, in the Slack and, uh, and one we've gotten a lot of email about. So we've now got enough distance from the acquisition that there's a lot more to come, but we feel uh, we feel comfortable covering it.
1: No doubt about that. And um, we thought now would be a good time to do it, given some of the themes we talked about on the Snap IPO episode, that this would be a good counterpoint, a uh, sort of different approach to a a camera company. Indeed.
0: So uh, before we dive in, we have some incredible listeners that leave some some great iTunes reviews. Um, And sometimes they're even a little host deprecating, but we love them all the same, as long as they uh, they're five stars and they help us grow the show. So, as we mentioned a couple episodes ago, if you leave one that we think is worth reading on the air, um, we're going to go ahead and do uh, do just that. So, uh, one we've got from Daniel X is uh, an emoji review, which is trophy, uh, bag of money, unicorn, which I think is quite quite appropriate. And then <laughs> this one this one's a little. Uh, I I had trouble parsing it at first. And then I was like, oh, I see what they're doing. The subject is, yep. Yep. And the description is, that's one of my favorite phrases Ben uses. Oh man. Yeah. And super interesting are up there too. So (laughs) now I'm going to be incredibly self-conscious every time I use those phrases. Uh, uh, Thank you so much. We
1: love you (laughs) just the same, Ben.
0: And uh, the username on that one is active users. So thank you to all the active users out there that really appreciate my catchphrases. (laughs)
1: Oh, that's great.
0: All right. Moving on. Uh, I'm happy to leave that behind. But what the, the point we're trying to make is leave us iTunes reviews. It helps us grow the show. We love it. And uh, hopefully, if, you, if you're creative, then we get to share it with the rest of our audience. Um, speaking of the rest of our audience, we've got a Slack. So join us at uh, acquired.fm. You can uh, join the over 500 of us that are um, in, in talking about tech, M&A, and uh, any, any news that comes up between episodes. For our sponsor this episode, we have ZoomInfo. ZoomInfo is an awesome business and product story that is totally in the acquired vein.
1: Totally. This is an amazing under-the-radar entrepreneurial story. Henry Shuck, the CEO of ZoomInfo, actually founded a predecessor company back in 2007 called DiscoverOrg from his law school apartment. They were dedicated to helping sales professionals find the right contacts at the right accounts so they could stop digging for prospects and focus on closing deals. And then, in 2019, Discover.org actually acquired ZoomInfo, another big player in the business data space. Yes,
0: they kept the ZoomInfo name, and the combined company has grown way beyond just being a contact data solution. They've actually created this full-stack B2B revenue growth platform on top of it. It is super cool. ZoomInfo actually went public in 2020. They were the first real tech IPO after COVID hit. And they have continued to expand their product suite and they've just done phenomenally well it starts with the best business data in the world whether that's company contact or intent data and this data fuels zoom infos actionable insights engagement platform automated workflow capabilities and so much more it is the single best way for b2b professionals to find their next customer or close their next deal streamline their operations and build the best team possible and best of all it is all in one place so your revenue teams can collaborate seamlessly and close deals faster
1: so if you're in b2b and you're wondering how can we drive more revenue and who's not how can we find acquire and grow accounts that are looking for our solution right now how do we make our sales and marketing teams as productive as possible how do we automate our go-to-market motions to both supercharge our growth and save money ZoomInfo is simply amazing. They now handle the full revenue pipeline from marketing to sales, even ops, all based on the number one ranked business data.
0: Yes, customers include enterprises like Snowflake, Workday, PayPal, Dropbox, Unilever, and thousands of startup and growth companies, 30,000 customers and counting. And here's something really cool. ZoomInfo is making their go-to-market playbook available for anyone to try for free, you want to find out how you can use intent data to target key prospects, or how to revive a stalled deal by expanding your buying committee outreach. Head on over to acquired.fm slash zoominfo to see the Zoom Info plays, and just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you.
1: Yes, definitely. And our huge thank you to Zoom Info. Now, onto the episode. David,
0: can you uh, take us through the acquisition history and facts?
1: I will, as always, Ben. So we pick up our story of Facebook's 2014 acquisition of Oculus, the virtual reality company, in 2010 when a 17-year-old homeschooled kid in Long Beach, California named Palmer Lucky was taking he'd been been homeschooled for its education up till then and he was taking some classes at at Cal State Long Beach and he had he had a problem and, and his problem was that he loved video games and and he loved them PC games in particular And he loved them so much that he he had created this like massive setup uh at home where he had six monitors and he just wanted to get like as immersed into the games he was playing as possible um, but even with all these monitors, it still wasn't good enough. He wanted to get like deeper into the game. He wanted like <laughs> when I was, when I was writing this. I was thinking about the, the EA sports, uh, uh EA sports tagline, you know, the, get in the area it's in the game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I read somewhere. He had like the largest collection of HMDs, uh, head mounted displays, uh, of, of currently existing or hacked together hardware in the world before he uh, he set out to build Oculus. Yes.
1: So, well, his problem was he wanted to literally get get into the game and uh, and so, you know, lots of lots of kids, myself included, wanted to do that when I was 17, but Palmer actually did something about it. So, he went over to USC, and USC had this thing, has this thing called the Institute for Creative Technologies, which is a lab that was created there in 1999 and it was actually funded by the Department of Defense. And the idea is that in LA, they would combine sort of you know the resources of USC, a major research university, kind of all the special effects technology in Hollywood and, and the video game industry, which is, has a, a huge base in LA. Um, and they'd use it to, to build advanced training and simulation technologies. And what that meant in practice was virtual reality.
0: Yeah. I mean, it feels like a, a great thesis to me and it's funny thinking about funded by the department of defense. Boy, oh boy, have we seen that that as a tech theme over and over again. in, in a yeah. lot of these companies, yeah, either, either the companies themselves or the, the research labs they come out of, or, you know, even just the history of Silicon Valley and, uh, and the importance of, of how the semiconductor came to be.
1: Yeah. So Palmer, a 17 year old, uh, kid in in Long Beach he talks his way into getting a part-time job at the ICT at USC and he's working on a team that's that's trying to design cost-effective virtual reality but he still he still he wants to move faster so in his parents garage he starts hacking away with basically like components from smartphones trying to make the device that's really going to achieve his dreams which is be able to play video games uh, in virtual reality and uh, and at the same time, he's he's you know on the internet natively as as all kids are back then and these days, and he hangs out in uh, in forums online, and in particular at this one forum called the Meant to Be Seen 3D uh, discussion forum, which is I don't know if it was the largest, but it's certainly a very active internet forum dedicated to trying to create virtual reality devices uh, at the time. Yeah, man, forums were like. That's where everything happened back in the day. Totally, <laughs> it's like um, it's like back in you know, the, the more things change, the more they say the same, right? The original like you know, Netscape and uh, um, you know ARPANET days. And-
0: yeah, and I mean anybody like, but pre dating forums were you know mailing lists and Usenet, and like it's just a, con- a constant reinvention of the same thing. People see community. Internet's incredible for community. Revision, revision, revision.
1: Yep and you know now we have virtual reality so maybe maybe the next uh, great entrepreneurs will meet you know in uh on an oculus or on a vive Yep. so he's on he's he's posting progress uh as he's he's building these prototypes in his garage on the uh on the meant to be seen forums and turns out that there are among the other posters on the forum or, or lurkers on the forum is a guy named john carmack and uh, that might ring that name might ring some bells for some of our listeners Uh, john is probably one of the most famous people in the video game world he was the co-founder of id software and id created and, and john in particular pioneered a lot of the Um, techniques still quake i mean quake doom wolfenstein 3d you know all of the first generation of first person shooter pc games
0: yeah and i think his like one of his greatest contributions was the um the algorithms to do the shading of shadows so that things look appropriately far away and appropriately lit as you you know approach them or turn corners or you know the things that we take incredibly for granted today, but were actually required a lot of uh, complexity.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I remember, gosh, I was probably in middle school when those games were coming out, and like, it was they were so far advanced versus anything else on on the PC at the time, uh, even the PC or like the NES.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So uh, Carmack is on the forums, and he sees, and he's and he's on the forums because he is also interested in VR, and he kind of shares. Uh, Palmer's dream that playing video games in VR is going to be a totally new paradigm and really, really compelling. And and actually his CarMax dream, he had, uh, it had released Doom three recently. Uh, He wanted to port Doom three into VR. Mm. And so he sees, uh, he sees all the progress that, that Palmer's making and he reaches out to him. And, and there's add-
0: no there's no great hardware out for VR, right? Like if anybody wanted to port to VR at this point, it's like, you know, highly specialized installations in science centers and stuff. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, it's the kind of stuff that USC is doing at the ICT for the military um, or science applications. You know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars for a room scale installation, you know, nothing like uh, what the Rift becomes, which was you could go on on Oculus's website and order a development kit for $300. Mhm. So Carmack reaches out to to Palmer, uh, asks if he can buy a Rift and uh, and and Palmer apparently says he says in an interview later he uh, he decided he was just going to play it cool and he's like, "Oh, I'll just give you one." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so he does and um and it's fortunate for for him and for the future of VR that he he did this was we're now into 2012 and john carmack goes to e3 which is the big uh, one of the two big industry conferences for video games the other one is gdc which we're going to talk about in a minute uh, but john goes to e3 in 2012 which is in june and he gives uh, he gives a big talk and he talks about how excited he is about vr and he shows uh, he demonstrates a version of doom three that he's created that is running on the rift and and the rift is like a totally hacked duct taped together prototype (laughs) that that palmer had sent him
0: it was actually duct taped right like uh, there's some i read about a meeting with them where like he actually duct taped the this the display to the head mounting piece
1: yeah they're they're great videos online and of course you know after this all the tech and video game press covers this and um and then goes and tries tries it out and wears it. And like the, the unit is actually duct taped together.
0: <laughs> yeah, and to- just like ridiculous watershed moment when uh, when John Carmack is demoing on your hardware at E three. You know, it, it's uh, this is pre Kickstarter. Is
1: that right? Or is this so? This, this is, is pre Kickstarter. There's wow. not even a company yet. It's literally just Palmer working on this stuff. And uh, and he's at this point, I believe, either eighteen or nineteen years old. Crazy totally crazy so e3 2012 is the big moment for what would the artist that would become known as oculus mm-hmm. um and a few other folks you know in addition to the entire video game industry uh, sort of take notice and and two of the folks who reach out to palmer uh when they hear the story about this are two guys named brendan aribe and michael antonov who also were in the la area they had been co-founders of a company called Scaleform, which was a a sort of a video game um, UI technology company that Adobe had acquired several years earlier. They'd worked at Adobe for a while, and then Brendan actually had left, and he joined a company called Gaikai, uh, which folks in the uh, video game industry might remember was a streaming video game company that Sony acquired a couple years earlier. Um, and the idea being, and actually a lot of consoles use this today, um, that rather than buying a game on a, you know, a physical media or downloading it, you can play a game just by streaming it over the internet.
0: Oh yeah. I remember, I Man, I remember Microsoft showing off some, some tech like this too, where the whole idea was that, you know, you're, you're done with downloading the bits to, your device. And um, in fact, on on this is actually a Windows phone demo. The, the device is hardware constrained, but we have all this amazing cloud computing and, and we're going to, in a low latency way, stream your interactions back up to the cloud. The game computation is going to happen in the cloud and then stream it back down to your device and it'll feel native. I feel like I've seen a lot of those demos and the trend seems to be toward powerful clients still like we haven't gone to this world where gaming is happening it's never totally worked
1: right yeah i mean the dream is really cool right that like on any uh on any client as long as you have a fast enough internet connection you don't actually have to do all the hard rendering on the on the client it can all be done in the cloud and just streamed as video but it's never quite lived up to the promise
0: yeah and and i think this is kind of a tech trend for me later but i think to, to quickly derail into it it's uh we continue to pursue this dual track of pushing the envelope on desktop grade or even, uh, yeah, let's call it desktop grade gamer PCs. So you see the Oculus hooked up to really, you know, really crazy towers. And then simultaneously, what we were trying to do in a low power way on phones, like phones keep getting more powerful and the the processors and phones keep getting better at originally, um, you know, apps and then casual games and now a little bit more more serious games on mobile. And we're definitely seeing the, the, the trend of, you know anyone who is interested in pushing all the intense compute up to the cloud for games that are played on mobile? Well, mobile got good enough to largely just play them themselves, and then the ones that require better experiences, the the intense sorta R and D push the envelope of what can be done is is really still being done on uh, on towers, and that's not you know that that's not going away anytime soon.
1: Yep, and especially in VR. Yep, you need uh, one of the things limiting the market right now, which we'll get into, is. You need a super powerful PC to make this stuff work, which not that many people have anymore.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, we're interrupting a lot. But as a quick aside for listeners, I remember going into David's office like, a few years ago at at, uh, Madrona and he's like putting together this like crazy tower to hook up his uh, his dev kit Oculus to and telling me about how like VR is here like we're looking seriously (laughs) at this now like it's the future like people are maybe not consumer adoption right away and I remember thinking like maybe not consumer adoption right away like nobody has a tower nobody's (laughs) gonna buy a four thousand dollar gaming rig and like that's still kind of the state of good VR right now.
1: Yeah, I mean we're gonna get into it, but we still have that at Madrona. It's uh, the thing weighs about fifty pounds. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so so Brendan and Michael coming from Scale Format, and, and Brendan then immediately from Gaikai, Guy Guy, they reach out to. They're really excited about this. Um, you know, they're game guys and, and business guys in in the game industry. Reach out to Palmer and, and basically convince him that there's a big company to be started here and that they want to start the company together. So the three of them get together with a few other folks who are the initial engineers. Uh, Brendan's the the CEO of the company. They found the company kind of in June, July 2012. And then immediately afterwards they launched the Kickstarter in, in August 2012, which, which Palmer had been planning to do beforehand, but, uh, and and right after E3, but got delayed as they were starting the company and the Kickstarter becomes hugely successful. And I actually went and rewatched it right before we recorded this. And like it is um, (laughs) it's great to watch, but so funny knowing the history of what happens immediately thereafter. So Carmack is, is featured heavily in, in the video as are folks from valve, including Gabe Newell, uh, the the, the founder of valve. Go watch the video. We'll we'll link to it in the show notes. He, he gives a kind of glowing discussion of of Palmer and the future of VR. And he says, quote, we strongly encourage you to support this Kickstarter. We meaning, you know, him and and valve. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's awesome. Uh, It's so awesome. So on the strength of this uh, and,
0: and for listeners that don't know why we're saying that's awesome, like Valve and HTC would go on to create the only serious competitor to the Oculus right now um, and arguably better. It, anyway, leaving that aside, the five. And it's it's hilarious to see him on Team Oculus at the start.
1: Yeah, well, and Valve's had such a long history with trying to get into VR, but but they finally do it right <laughs> after the Facebook acquisition. So the, the Kickstarter is hugely successful. They had set an initial goal of $250,000. They end up raising 10 times that. They raise almost $2.5 million. And then they do something really smart, which is after the Kickstarter ends, they basically just continue it on the Oculus website. And and anybody can go there and order order a developer kit uh, for $300.
0: And this is like earlier in the crowdfunding era. And it's like amazing to see, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to just put together around a $250K, like you don't want to raise 2.4 million because you give up your whole company but like in the in the isn't crowdfunding great where you know there's there's no equity so it's just like money for you to play around with and sure you have to fulfill those pre-orders and that's the the biggest issue with with kickstarters but like what an amazing uh what an amazing model to bootstrap a company and, and get some cash in there you know long ahead of when you're gonna ship the units
1: yeah, totally. And, um, you know, and, and they turn it around pretty quickly. But but when they when they put the pre-orders up on the website after the Kickstarter campaign, there's so much momentum continuing that they're selling, you know, supposedly for the first couple of days that it's up on the website, they're selling four to five developer kits, DK ones, as they come to be known, quote, unquote, DK for developer kit, the, the first one at four to five every minute at 300 bucks a pop, which is pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah. So they go along, and they're they're working on shipping the developer kit. They start shipping it, and by the summer of next year, June 2013, uh, the VCs you know start to get us VCs start to get wind of what's going on down there in Southern California, and the company ends up raising a $16 million Series A, co-led by Spark and Matrix, and then and that's in June of 2013, and then right after the first well the the, company wise the first really big victory happens they that john carmack actually decides to leave id and join oculus as the cto and this is a huge huge moment uh, in the gaming world for the company
0: yep and actually as someone who wasn't following it that closely at the time this was the first time that I took Oculus seriously and I didn't realize that Carmack was in the video or presenting on stage. This is the first time I'd heard his name associated with it. And suddenly it was like, okay, this company's serious. Like the you know, the creator of Doom and Quake is is joining as their CTO.
1: Yeah. So and and you weren't uh weren't the only person to notice this. Now, they they had obviously raised the series A that summer, but Mark Andreessen and Andreessen Horowitz also noticed that John Carmack has just gone and joined this left it and joined this uh this baby baby uh virtual reality company based down in Southern california, and in December a couple months later, andreessen Horowitz ends up leading a seventy five million dollar series b in the company and mark andreessen joins the board
0: so what what was the time between that series a and series b
1: uh it was six months or less wow, and the other you know sort of uh uh foreshadowing of the future here you know mark of course uh and why this is important to the story also happens to be on the board of another company that's going to get involved here, which is Facebook.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's convenient.
1: <laughs> yes. So um, that was December 2013. A couple months later, at GDC, which, as I mentioned, is the other big industry conference in the video game industry, and that happens in San Francisco. Uh, that's at the beginning of March, and Oculus announces that they've been successful with the DK one and they're coming out with a new version of the developer kit. So still focused on uh, shipping these to developers. They're not ready to release a consumer device yet, but they announced the DK two and that that's going to begin shipping in July, 2014. And the DK two is vastly improved over the DK one. You know, yeah. I think, still,
0: I think, yeah, the DK two was the first one I had tried. And I remember putting out on being like, okay, this is very different. Like this is uh you know, I understand what the hype is about now, but I still wasn't like this is this is the next tidal wave. But then the one after that, I think the Crescent Bay, which I don't know if they yep. like how how many different. They never they sold. There,
1: they but, never actually sold the Crescent Bay. Um, That was sort of like the. The the first iteration of what would become the consumer version that they'd ship in 2016.
0: Yeah, I think I tried that at 2015 Ether, or no 2015 CES, and they take you to this private room. You have like a 15 minute little demo with it, and that that was the one. The Crescent Bay was the one where I was like, okay, this is the next tidal wave of technology.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it, and and it really you know the DK two. Um, the dk one was was you know still had a lot of the the duct tape heritage in it, and I'd say the d k two did from a like software perspective, but from a hardware perspective, it was pretty good and had solid components in it and and when you used it, it really enabled the average person uh the average person couldn't you know i think just buy one off the internet and set it up on their laptop however if if you had a friend or knew somebody who had a had a setup uh with the DK2 you could put it on and it would kind of just work and you could see what was so amazing and how different and immersive VR was versus just playing a regular video game. Yep. So uh that was the beginning of March and then very shortly thereafter our recurring character on a, on a, on acquired uh Mark Zuckerberg comes uh, comes knocking and he gets in touch with the company and says hey, heard some really cool things about what you're doing. I'd love to get a demo.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, how, do, do you know how that introduction was brokered? Like, is that through Andreessen? Or like, do you just get an email from Zuck at Facebook? That's like, hey, <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: I don't I don't know. It may be out there. Listeners, if you know, uh, hit us up on Slack or, or shoot us an email. I, I assume that there were easy channels to, to make that introduction happen. Yeah. But somewhat like the like the snap or original Snapchat episode, Zuck, I I believe, as as the story goes, you know, asked for them to come up to uh, come up to Facebook's campus and um, do a demo up there. And Brendan responds and says, hey, uh, and this is from an interview with Brendan after the acquisition. Hey, you know, actually, it'd be better if, if you come down here because we have a better setup here. So uh, <laughs> just like he did with Evan Spiegel. So uh, get Mark,
0: on your private plane and fly yep, down to Irvine.
1: <laughs> Mark flies down to Irvine, uh, meets with Oculus, uh, is really impressed with what he sees. And... Um, and, and it says, you know, hey, we, what can Facebook do to help you? <laughs> and that quickly leads into acquisition discussions. So by the end of the month, the deal's done. Uh, it gets announced. Facebook acquires Oculus for 2.3 billion in total, of which, interestingly, only 400 million in cash, 1.6 billion in Facebook stock, and then there was an additional earnout of 300 million. But this was. Similar to the Instagram deal and the the failed Snapchat deal um, from the year before, and, and WhatsApp, this is you know, sort of cementing Facebook and, and Mark Zuckerberg's reputation as a very aggressive acquirer.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think uh, I I think it again we always bleed into tech themes here, but like it's really exemplifying Facebook's FOMO. I mean, their their fear of missing out, where they see something that they're not currently working on that is uh, either uh, an, a, something with an existing strong network effect like a WhatsApp or an Instagram that that could unseat them, or a powerful new piece of technology that could become the next wave of computing. And if they're not on it, they're kind of screwed. So they've very masterfully had an M and A strategy to uh, to kind of make sure that they stay on top and and don't uh, act like the social network of, of social networks of years years past. Yeah,
1: and um, you know we're going to get into this in the rest of the show, but I think what's so cool given how often Facebook has shown up, showed up on acquired and, and all the, both the IPO and the acquisitions we've talked about, you can really see how and why this philosophy came to sort of rule the day with, with Mark and, and, and at the company, you know, through the IPO when they had the huge disaster with mobile and, and realizing, you know, Mark realizing as a CEO and the company realizing that, um, they, they had missed that wave and they needed to uh, they needed to paddle over to it, you know, with all strength ASAP. Yep. And that included acquiring Instagram.
0: I saw a fascinating stat that uh, I didn't even think about is that so Facebook was constantly referred to as a website when they when they launched and for years after. And in 2008, they launched a mobile app but nobody referred to them like as an app company and it, it really took them like four whole years after so that you know they founded in 2004 app launched in 2008 still largely a website even though they had an app and it took them all the way until 2012 to be taken seriously as a a mobile company and you know now 84 plus percent of their revenue comes from um, from mobile advertising and i think that it's interesting to note that like it takes time even though you are on a platform or have a technology to make that the competency of your company and i think that uh saw an opportunity here to you know not let vr evolve around them and then have to play catch up and get on that platform and then like turn the company to be centered around that platform this is an opportunity to say you know we don't know exactly what it is yet if if you know oculus by facebook is the platform and other people are on it or if facebook is delivered over vr through oculus that much is unclear but what is important is uh they can't afford a four-year lag before starting to play on a platform and and turning the company to be uh centrally oriented around that platform when that's the one that everybody's
1: on yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you look at, you know, the billion dollars they spent for Instagram, the 19 billion dollars they spent for WhatsApp, the three billion dollars they offered Snapchat. You know, those were all examples of they were they were too late and they needed to come in and 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 take out these uh, unsuccessfully in Snapchat's case, take out these threats that were popping up in their, you know within their current domain but 2.3 billion dollars was a lot of money to spend for for a wave and a technology uh and a modality that was e- even then you know i think if, if rational uh cooler heads prevailed at that moment looking at the company it was still a long way away i mean we're here in 2017 and it's still a ways away even three years later
0: yeah yeah so okay what was the date of the acquisition it was uh
1: it was March 2014.
0: Okay, so that $75 million Series B was in December of 2013. So uh, <laughs> moving away from the Facebook side a little bit and looking over at the Andreessen side of this, they invested $75 million and then th- uh, just a little over three months later got, let's see...
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah uh, well and i think 20x, um, um, I i believe i don't know if it's a official but in, in research I, saw, I believe the the valuation of the Andreessen round was between 300 and 400 million
0: wow so that's uh call it a f- 10x i mean somewhere somewhere yeah, in sl- the slightly 8x? less than
1: less than 10x um but still on that's on a, a lot of money
0: yeah well good for them
1: yeah great for them we'll get into um we'll get into acquisition category in a minute here, but uh, the story doesn't quite end unfortunately for Facebook when they acquire the company um, because two things happen over uh, well, starting immediately, but play out over the next couple of years. One, it turns out that, you know, Carmack is as important as he was. And I, I really think Oculus, the company uh, and, and the technology wouldn't exist without him. Unfortunately, his former employer id software which itself had been acquired a couple years before by a uh, video game conglomerate called Zenimax they also agreed that Oculus wouldn't uh wouldn't exist without Carmack and his contributions and they end up suing Oculus and Facebook alleging Carmack a couple things one that Carmack had stolen critical ip from his work at, at id and taken it to Oculus um, and two actually uh, in 2012, Palmer Lucky had met. I don't know if it was when he was meeting with Carmack or with other folks that had had signed an NDA with the company. And uh, as a result of everything that happens, Zenimax is alleging that he had violated that any that NDA, hmm.
0: and uh, alleged, and then uh, and then you and know. then so
1: so that that lawsuit hits almost immediately after the acquisition. And then only just a month ago, as we're recording this, in February of 2017, a jury in Texas, which id Software was based in Texas, is based in Texas, actually rules in favor of ZeniMax, a $500 million judgment against Facebook uh, and Oculus. And and Facebook has said that they're going to appeal, but still, that's not good.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that takes it from a two point, uh, you know, 2.3, it, up to 2.3 up, 2.8. up to 2.8. Um, yeah.
1: But it gets even potentially worse in that Zenimax Zenimax has also filed a court injunction arguing that the courts should halt sales of the rift, which would just be terrible. Wow. Yeah, that's that's Uh, a far more serious blow. Yeah, hasn't happened yet, but is potential. Clearly, they're posturing and trying to, to bargain between the parties here. Yeah, I did some I, just, I did some research on on Zenimax for for this, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's quite a large video game conglomerate. They they own a bunch of studios, including the one that makes. Um, video game fans among our listeners will know the Elder Scrolls, and the Fallout series, but uh, guess who is on the board of Zenimax? It, uh,
0: the only the only thing that wouldn't surprise me is Carl Icahn.
1: <laughs> no, but uh almost as good. So they they have quite the cast of characters. They have Cal Ripken Jr., the uh oh the Iron, God, Man, the Iron Man, the baseball player. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry Bruckheimer, the uh the movie producer. <laughs> <laughs> and um uh, in addition to less less Moonves, who's a, who is the CEO of CBS, and, but this is really the kicker. I, I just couldn't believe it when I read this. Robert Trump, Donald Trump's brother is on the board of Zenimax. What? <laughs> the internet even... says it's true
0: <laughs> boy what a weird company god conglomerates are weird man
1: yeah totally weird so you know you can't you can't make this stuff up truth is in fact sometimes more stranger than virtual reality
0: <laughs> yeah and you know we'll have a follow-up i'm, I'm sure probably not an episode but this will be an in, in follow-up in future episode but um I suspect you're right that the injunction to stop selling the rift is just posturing and trying to get potentially a, a, a settlement or, or more out of the current ruling or something. And um, it, it would shock me if they, they stop shipping the rift because of this, but it does feel like Facebook's going to, going to pay some more money there.
1: Yeah. Or, or at least it's, it's posturing perhaps trying to get Facebook to drop their appeal. But yeah. the other major thing that happens uh, after the acquisition um, that uh, that we've alluded to on the show is that <laughs> Valve and Gabe Newell decide that rather than uh, rather than just supporting Oculus, they actually want to get into virtual reality themselves. <laughs> so the next year at GDC in 2015, Valve unveils in collaboration with HTC, the uh, the Chinese consumer electronics company, they unveil the Vive, which is in many ways a superior product to to Oculus and the Rift, and and the Vive has two key innovations that um the rift doesn't have at that point one are true hand touch controllers so when you would play the experiences or games on on oculus before valve came out with the vive you would have to use either a keyboard and a mouse or or a video game controller an xbox controller and that's just Totally, boy, does that know, pull you out of the experience?
0: Really right? like, pulls
1: you out of the presence, which is the whole point of VR. Valve ships these controllers that enable you to move your hands around and grab things and pick things up and and interact much more naturally with the environment. And then they also have the the while it's still tethered, the headset that you wear still has a cable coming out of it and attaches to the PC. There are they're called lighthouses uh, that are laser positional tracking. Uh, boxes that you put in the room, and that allow you to walk around the room, so you're no longer just sitting in a chair with your hands on a video game controller like the old video game paradigms. But it really changes this into a much more immersive experience. And boy, what a what a brilliant freaking end around by uh, by Valve! Like
0: they're totally. a software company for for listeners that don't know a bunch about Valve. Uh, they're a software company. They make games and they make a, a platform called Steam, and they make. I think they make most of their money from steam and they get a a cut of all the distribution of the games that go out over steam and, uh, and Steam's sort of the default way if you're a PC gamer to, uh, to go and get new games that come out. So basically they own the pipe. And you know they're a super wacky company, brilliant, brilliant engineers. They're brilliant game designers that, um, of course, are interested in VR. But like, they're not going to make hardware. Like that, that, that's not in their core competency at all. And they've been, as David alluded to, trying for years to figure out what the right way to get into VR was. And for them to be able to, you know, closely track and and be a fan of of Oculus, see that fall into Facebook's hands, which yeah. Loosely competitors, right? At the very least, you don't want to put too much of your your company's stake on uh, on in, in Facebook's control. And to be able to, in that tight of a window, turn around, find a hardware partner like HTC, and get into market with a superior product, like it, there's a lot of things that we'll conclude out of this episode. But one of them is that there are people at, at Valve and HTC that are executionally brilliant. Yeah.
1: And Valve is, we'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, I suspect a lot of our listeners are, are know the company well, but for those that don't, it is a fascinating place. Their employee handbook le- leaked on the internet a few years ago. And it's it's more like a manifesto. There's a, <laughs> there's no hierarchy. Nobody reports to anyone else there. Everybody decides what they work on. They're, everybody's desk is on wheels. And if you decide you want to work on something else with the other team, you just pick you move your desk over to wherever that team is and you start working on whatever they're working on and and i
0: believe it's a hundred percent owned by gabe duel so there's no i mean there's not uh a lot of leaks of stuff from shareholders or public disclosures or any or, or really even like known market cap of the company it's a very uh yeah, it's
1: very, very closely held. I I don't believe Gabe owns exactly a hundred percent, but he definitely controls the company. Yeah, um, just one person, and and they make you know nobody knows outside of Valve the exact number, but um, but the, a lot of money. I mean, billions of dollars of revenue from uh, mostly from Steam, as Ben mentioned.
0: Yep, and if there's an opposite podcast to to acquired, it's like so in, in the acquired. Uh, or in the corp dev parlance, you know, acquired is often about the buy, not the build. Um, if there was a podcast that was about the build decision instead of the buy decision, uh, we would really want to like e- examine what Valve does here and what their existing uh, business with Steam sort of allowed them to do in, in going into VR and taking this like very expensive risk on something that has, has
1: you know, super unclear business value, especially when they start the venture yeah and they you know they really you know i don't think there's really any two ways about it they out execute facebook and oculus over the next two years um facebook ends up shipping the consumer version of of the oculus rift before valve by by a week so the the consumer version of the rift comes out in at the very end of march 2016 um and then at the beginning of april uh, Valve ships the Vive, but again, with these two key innovations that Oculus doesn't have, and it's not until December 2016, so just a few months ago now, that Oculus finally brings out their touch controllers, which brings them closer to parity with, uh, with the hand controllers of, of, of the Vive.
0: Yeah. And, you know, what I mentioned earlier that the Crescent Bay woke me up to the idea that, that VR is, a, a you know, the next tidal wave in technology. Um, I'd say the next step function was that was the first time I tried the Vive. Uh, I think that there, there was a thing, I think Google might have even made it, but it was a thing where you could paint and you use the controllers to Tilt paint. Tilt brush, yes. Tilt brush, yeah. and then Super there was
1: a cool. T- it's like MS Paint in VR is the <laughs> only way to describe it. Um, it was an independent company, a couple developers, and Google ended up acquiring it.
0: Oh, nice. 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 So there's that demo. And then there's one in a kitchen where like you go in and you're supposed to like, you know, <laughs> yeah, start the making a job the food. simulator. Yeah. But really what ends up happening is like you can just mess every like you can just pick up pans and heave it at a wall and knock the like this is incredibly thrilling experience of like throwing an entire rolling cart full of dishes on the ground and having no consequences. And I'd yeah, say that that was fun. the first time where, like, I think I was in that thing for like a half hour it felt like five to 10 minutes and that was the first time where like I legitimately didn't want to leave like that. That was the first time where I was like, Oh, people are going to get real addicted to this.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, I'd say for our listeners that aren't into VR, maybe haven't even tried it yet, you know, go find, it's worth it. You owe it to yourself if you care about technology and thinking about where waves are going to, you know, break in the future, go find a friend or or go to your local venture capital firm that has a vive installed <laughs> and um and try out a few things try out tilt brush uh, it's really you know it'll take you back to the first time you used ms paint on a pc <laughs> if you're old like me and ben try out there's this my favorite favorite app and game is in, in vr these days is um by by our friends over at rec room, rec room. which is a really amazing company in seattle and and the best i can describe rec room is you 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 just have to play it yourself and you'll you'll be a believer about the potential of vr but that's like the first time i played GoldenEye 64 as a kid and had my first you know like shooter 3d video game experience and rec room so much more than that but just that pure fun it's it's great
0: yeah, and the reason is, and we'll get into this, and, and I think this is part of Facebook's bet is, you know, Facebook, I think Zuckerberg, let me read the quote real quick. He uh, He's over and over again said, VR is going to be the most social platform. And I think the super cool thing about Rec Room is like, you're in there just hanging out. You're doing all sorts. You're in a room, you're playing paintball, You're there's like all these different activities you can do, but it's all centered around like, you're just like hanging out with other people as if it was sort of real life. And one thing I want to dissect later in the tech themes is like, does that like... Do, do you agree that the the you know killer killer app of vr is is a social one um, but the cool thing about rec room is like when you when you try it you're like wow i really am just like hanging out in here and i could do this for hours with other people
1: yeah and that's what you know when I said it it reminded me it reminds me of what it was like playing Goldeneye the first time like the single player campaign in Goldeneye like you know it's fine it's whatever it's good but like Goldeneye was all about playing with your friends and everything like all the talking smack and, and you know the hours and hours and hours I spent in high school and college with my friends playing that you know that's what Rec Room is like and uh, it, it really feels like a glimpse into the future Yep Hey acquired listeners I'm jumping in with a
0: quick update. In the next section, we talk about where Oculus is today and recent events involving the team. There was some pretty big news between recording and releasing this episode, so I'm here to tell you... Oculus founder Palmer Luckey has left Facebook. On March 30th, Facebook confirmed his departure following a long stretch of Facebook being very quiet about Palmer. This came after he denied and then confirmed reports of funding a pro-Trump organization called Nimble America and then did not appear at Oculus's developer conference. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Okay, so let's finish up uh, history and facts. You want David, you wanna take us to like the recent events of the last uh, last six months to a year and then we'll go on to acquisition category?
1: Um, well I think we've kinda done that. We
0: can yeah, get this far. Oh, I, I guess I mean per- personnel-wise. So um so Facebook oh, yeah, y- yeah, I mean, there's been some really interesting things that have happened as Oculus starts to merge more into Facebook. So um, Palmer Luckey is no longer the CEO of Oculus, but is still at Facebook
1: working on things. That's um, yeah. uh, actually uh, Brandon. So Palmer was never the oh, CEO. Oh, right, right, right. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Brendan Uribe yep, stepped down as CEO. He's now managing Oculus's quote PC division, which is basically the Rift.
0: Right, right. And then so Palmer, similarly, is at Facebook, uh, t- kind of titleless. And uh, so the way you can kind of think of of what's going on at at uh, Facebook right now is. Oculus is getting more integrated. There's still the Oculus group that makes the Oculus Rift. Facebook has more independent VR teams. There's a, a, a PC VR, mobile VR, um, and uh, and you know obviously we we've seen the, the there's been demos on stage of these incredibly social experiences that may be the future of what Facebook looks like um, in VR. And uh, and you know they're 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 shipping the the Rift, but it's very clear that. Whereas with Instagram and WhatsApp, they stay very separate. Oculus is an acquisition where they're getting much tighter integration with the company and uh, and it looks a lot more like a division than it does uh, a separate company. And uh, one huge marker of that is the, the whole team, or at least a, a good chunk of the team moved from Irvine um, yep. up to Menlo.
1: Yeah. Uh, Oculus's headquarters is now uh, in in Menlo Park with the rest of the Facebook campus. But th- I think that's a... Perfect transition to acquisition category, um, and I think for me, clearly this is uh, is well. You're curious what you will say, Ben, but to me, it's clearly a business line acquisition. I mean, this is a new product, a new platform, uh, not part of the existing wave that Facebook is on um, that they're buying. And and I think you know it was interesting that they initially kept. Uh, they tried to run the playbook of keeping the team totally separate and totally autonomous and in particular you know kind of at arm's length away down in southern california but then that didn't work out quite so well as they got ended rounded by valve um, and now they're moving it much more in you know moving to integrate it much more deeply into the rest of facebook the company disagree entirely Uh, (laughs) I love
0: it it's I think it's a technology acquisition I would I would say the the uh, signaling initially could could lead more toward business line of keeping it separate of it being its own revenue generator but to me, this is a defensive play on protecting the, the network that Facebook has and their existing business model. I think that for them, they looked at this and said, okay, VR is clearly the future. We need to make sure that we have a position on the dominant technology platform of the future. And we are right now at risk of other people building all the hardware and the platforms and us being having nothing to do with it and then having no leverage in making sure that we have a dominant position on that platform. And Facebook has seen, they've seen, like, I guess the point I'm making is they don't care about the business line of selling Oculus Rifts to people. And I think that they've looked around and seen, crap, we don't actually own the direct relationship with any of our users. They're in a slightly tenuous position where, you know, they, they, people are... You know, into Facebook, they're they're on it all the time. They're on it every day. It's an essential part of people's lives and provides a ton of utility. But they access it through either their Apple device, their Android device. Um, they Facebook desperately tried to make their own phone, that didn't work. Like Facebook is in a little bit of a tenuous position in not directly owning their customers and or at least not directly owning the users that their advertising customers monetize. And I think what Oculus is is them trying to get out ahead and making sure that with this technology that clearly evolves to be the future of computing that they aren't going to be upended by by someone else who decides that and eh, we're not going to prioritize Facebook on the platform where all the users are.
1: Ben, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about owning the customer relationship at the point of access in the next wave, which they don't right now, you know, it's it's fun doing this episode right now. And in particular after the Snapchat IPO, but it's hard to judge right now. Like, I think if they had kept in fully in that, like, oh, we're going to keep it separate mindset, this would be a failure. But now that they're starting to integrate it more deeply, that feels like the right approach to me at this point.
0: Yeah. So let me this is the third time I've dangerously danced into tech themes ahead of schedule, but let me throw something out there that I think Facebook would be much better off keeping them separate and keeping it like its own little division with a kind of a firewall between Oculus and and Facebook because as they, so Facebook is a horizontal company. Facebook needs to make sure that they are on every single platform in the same way so that the most users, in the same way that Google needs the most users, they need scale, can get access to it. And the closer they start to integrate these things, the more the danger comes up of them prioritizing Facebook features to be Oculus only and not putting them on the Vive or whatever other platforms come to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really... When you're an employee at a company like that, you start to get confused as to what the priorities are. Yeah, Like, I remember being at Microsoft. You and not end up being with sure.
1: a, an iMessage situation, right?
0: Totally. And and one that I've experienced personally is like, you know, when you're at Microsoft, like it, at least a few years ago, it wasn't if you're in office, you hear the message that office is an important business on its own, maybe the most important but then things happen where like we don't ship office for iPad because we want to give the surface a head start yeah. and be the only platform with you know with with office on it And so with office being horizontal, Windows being a vertical, we take this over to Facebook and say Facebook is the horizontal and oculus is the vertical it seems like unless Facebook is is <laughs> believes that the Oculus will be or the you know Facebook VR will be the only VR platform where they will need to reach users. It seems really dangerous to start doing integration, and I would argue that they they really need to figure out how to make sure that they're not prioritizing Facebook for Oculus.
1: This gets into the really interesting part of the show, which is, you know, we talked about how Snap is clearly thinking about their future and what that's going to look like in a, whatever, augmented, virtual, mixed, whatever you want to call it, reality perspective, total aside. I might talk about this in tech themes, but as long as we're like, as long as people are debating what to call something, it's not a wave yet. The wave has not yet broken until like phones are just phones. When you're talking about like PDAs or smartphones, like no, (laughs) you know, once they're just phones, once it's just like your glasses, then we'll be there.
0: But David, the, the wave is VR, AR, MR, slash, <laughs> slash,
1: <laughs> slash, 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 slash. But the breaking of the wave is clearly coming, and Snap's working on it. Apple's working on it. Valve has a very successful, arguably more successful than Oculus product in the market. So what should Facebook do?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> one thing you could, you could argue they could do is what if they didn't actually let's let's move into what would have happened otherwise what if they didn't buy oculus but they found a way to make sure that facebook was great on all of these platforms like how do they get the leverage to make sure that they have a first-class relationship with customers of of vr or do they actually have to own one of them to like have an insurance policy that you know they're gonna in- invest a ton of money in making this single vr platform really great but somehow they're gonna have the the restraint to never prioritize the oculus business
1: yeah i don't know i mean i think it's the question you were asking which uh, i feel like we need to get ben thompson on this show to discuss like can facebook be a horizontal and a vertical business at the same time I mean, I don't know anybody that's ever succeeded at that. Dude, with
0: with great restraint, man. Like you just got to make it so clear to all of your employees that like Oculus is an insurance policy, and like Oculus needs to be really great. But we, all, but like the main business is Facebook. Like it, it mints money, and it's going to continue to make money as long as we don't screw it
1: up. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Easy to say in theory, right? Like I've <laughs> yeah. literally I never I, seen I, that happen before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I don't know that you could sell great employees on that, right? Like if you're if you're the best VR developer, f- screw that! I'm going to Valve.
1: Yeah. Well. Okay. Here. Here's a. Um. Here's a potential counterfactual one we've covered on this show. Android. So Google's a horizontal company. Google Search and Google Services, Gmail, Maps, whatnot, work great on iOS as on Android, obviously. And I think it's cl- pretty clear at this point, You know, like we talked about on that episode, the mobile wars are over, and that everybody within Google is aligned on making those services work great across all platforms, and yet they still have Android. But now here's what's key about Android, I think, to my mind, Google doesn't make <laughs> Android phones. I mean, that's changing a little bit, but right? But like, the whole strategy was get the software out there, get the operating system, let other people let other ecosystem partners build great hardware and get it in the hands of people and that use use android as a way to make sure that we are going to be able to continue deliver to deliver these great google services to everybody across all platforms a do you think that's that was the you know that that's a viable strategy b can facebook do that
0: totally a viable spra- strategy very interesting to like the main takeaway for me is Android itself doesn't make money. It prevents Google from having to give money to other people like Apple Um yep.
1: out of its. Well, out of its, they do give, as we talked about, a lot of money to Apple.
0: Yes, but they could give many times more money to Apple if Android didn't yep. exist. And and for listeners, that's the of the uh, search engine uh, affiliate revenues that they they pay out to wherever the search
1: originates from. Yeah. So Google pays on the order of billion dollars or more every year to apple in order that google remains the default search engine on the iphone uh, and and they actually it's not just like a straight payment it's that <laughs> apple actually gets a cut of adwords revenue so it's like a variable rev share for adwords that are served on searches on the iphone
0: yeah good to, good to be apple there so I think that well, hey,
1: it's good to be Google. You've got the best business model of all time.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the the Android strategy, I mean, Facebook totally could build like Oculus OS and then have uh, reference design and then do the same thing that Android did and have have third parties build the the hardware. I mean, is is uh, is that what Daydream is? Is Google sort of do, do, taking that approach with uh, Daydream VR?
1: Yeah, I don't know enough about it to say for sure, but I believe I believe it is similar, except that it's on android phones that are powering it so there is there is that wrinkle it's not like it's a uh, it's not like daydream as far as i know i could be wrong but i don't believe daydream is going to work on like ios i think you're right
0: so getting back to the other point that you're making though like I'm I'm not sure it actually buys Google or Facebook much to build the sort of VR software layer and then let someone else do the hardware. I mean that maybe it does. I don't know. I haven't I haven't actually really thought through that. I mean clearly that's the approach that Valve is sort of taking, that like they're gonna continue to make money from Steam and Steam is gonna be on all of the um, all of the vibes and like HTC, you take on all that that uh, hardware difficulty and risk and, and, and cost for, for making the hardware
1: well it reminds me a little bit um i hadn't thought about this until until you brought it up a couple minutes ago but i think it kind of comes back to microsoft too right like that's what microsoft did with the pc yeah which was build the operating system give it to everybody get it out there you know and you know apple wasn't you know that's great that apple exists right like uh we'll make uh we'll make office for for mac too you know <laughs> and we'll cripple it you know but <laughs> but i think you know there, there are plenty of examples whether it's microsoft and windows or google and android of that type of approach working it's when you then cross over into trying to be both vertical and horizontal that you get the office for ipad situation
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it keeps coming down to this. They just have to figure out a way. And Google took years to do this, to be clear that Android exists to power the search advertising business. And it has to be first class and a great OS on its own to have people use it because it's in a competitive landscape. But like it doesn't exist on its own to be Google's main revenue stream. And Facebook's just going to have to do the same thing with Oculus. And hopefully there's less tumult on the way to get there. Totally. So what would have happened otherwise? I mean, we're kind of in this section right now, but where, you know, if Oculus doesn't land at Facebook, what happens to it?
1: Well, um, that's a really good question because they'd raised a lot of money really quickly, but it was going to take a lot more money to get to where we are now. And clearly, I mean, I think if, if Facebook doesn't acquire Oculus, there's a chance that maybe Valve continues to partner with oculus and doesn't go off on its own however if given that they did and if they had and oculus was still alone and independent you know they would have had to do something because we saw with the execution that valve had when you bring the resources and the huge amounts of money that a a corporation like them can to building new technology like that they they were just going to blow Oculus out of the water, you know. <laughs> Oculus probably only was able to hang on because it had Facebook's resources. So I think it's it's hard to imagine Oculus remaining an independent company, a fully independent company. Yeah. Without needing to, you know, I mean I guess as we've talked about with both Snapchat and Uber and Didi, it is possible to raise huge sums of money these days, but I think it's not just about the money too. It's about being able to get the right OEM partnerships you know the right think about how much how many years and how much effort Apple has invested in creating their supply chain um, you know the idea that a startup would be able to do that in a, within a competitive landscape is is hard to imagine these days
0: yep Yep. And actually, here's a great quote from, from Palmer Luckey. Um, he said, I'd say we are five years ahead of where we would have been without the acquisition, pointing to the resources needed to improve the hardware technology as well as encourage software developers to build games and videos to watch on it. There's a strong argument to be made. We would never have gotten there in five or even 10 years. And there's a great yep. point that like the Facebook brand boosted the the network effect of developers making stuff for
1: it, too. Yeah, and the we've sort of talked about the evolution of the Rift hardware. You know, the DK one was like one step past duct tape, but the DK the DK two. But then you know, the consumer version like these are true good consumer products. Like totally, even with a lot of money, would they've been able to create that? Yep. Okay. So tech what names. would
0: what would real quick? Uh, what about the flip side of that? What would Facebook have done in VR without Oculus?
1: Hmm. Well. Facebook still hasn't done much in VR. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that's the other thing that, you know, um, it's just so early, right? Even three years later after the acquisition, best guesses are it's growing and growing quickly. But I bet there are. You know, there are certainly still well less than a million active, you know, daily active VR users out there in the whole world. You know, compare that to like six billion daily active users, six billion with a B, um, you know, in mobile. Uh, So I think Facebook is still totally fine.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I think so, too. Which is interesting to think about in grading the acquisition is uh, they've, they've so far paid $2.8 billion for a thing that they would have been completely fine without, but it's a long bet. Yep. Okay.
1: Check the aims.
0: So the, uh, running through my list of, of I'll, I'll just say like check next to the ones we've really already talked about, but you know, Facebook doesn't want left, to get left behind like they did with mobile check already talked about that you know, owning the customer relationship. Okay, here's the one that I really want to posit to you. So Zuckerberg often says that Facebook is going to be, or VR is going to be the most social platform. And I'm curious, do you think that that's actually where where VR is headed? Or is Zuckerberg saying this because it's like a mash of like, Facebook is the company that connects people and it makes the world a more open and connected place. Also, VR is the future. So we therefore must mash these things together because... You know, our business must survive in the world where VR is the future or, or or is it or do they actually have a good confluence and work together? Well,
1: I think he's right. This is maybe foreshadowing my greeting. I think he is both 100 percent right. And Facebook and Oculus have executed poorly on it. Mm. <laughs> you know, I think if you look at the vision that Snapchat is putting, that Snap is putting forward of you know a camera company, right? Which is the closest that I have seen to anything resembling, you know, normalcy and a true wave in what we're talking about. Because, like I said, you know, the wave is not quote unquote VR or AR or MR. It's glasses or a camera. It's something that real people everywhere are going to use people who don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I think he's right. And I think if you just look, look at Snapchat or, or look at rec room, on, honestly, you know I mean? That to me is, is what is the example of what's most compelling in this medium is actually being there and, and playing with people or, or doing things together with people. Um, so I think he's right. On the other hand, I think if you look at the product strategy and, The history over the last couple of years of what Oculus and Facebook have done, you know, they're they're behind because it's natural hand movements that are so important to that. It's walking around. It's the types of things that Valve has done with the Vive, but it's also what Snapchat's done, which is like to really make this mainstream, you need to get out of (laughs) the PC entirely. Mm -hmm. You need to make this something that people are going to be open with in the r- real world, you know, interacting with other people. Yep. Okay. So my, I think we've talked about a bunch of my themes too. The only one I would say, you know, that we just got a brief mention earlier in the episode, but, um, really came out for me thinking about this and doing the research is Kickstarter, right? Like <laughs> Oculus and the rift being one of the first, uh, not the first, but one of the first really breakout, companies slash products slash ideas to come out of creative endeavors to come out of the Kickstarter platform. Um, And that that reminds me of what I think is a deep theme in technology that anytime you can build a platform that enables other people's creativity in kind of ways that Mm -hmm. you would never imagine, that's a recipe for something special, whether that's an operating system, enabling software developers to create and distribute anything like the App Store or like Windows or like Apple, uh, whether that's Facebook, um, enabling anybody to share, you know, anything that they want to write or say. You know, I think Kickstarter is just a really cool example of that. And and led to Oculus. Yep. I think it's a great point. Should we grade it? Well, let's do it.
0: All right. So I uh I think you're you're you foreshadowed this a little bit, but like the strategy of Facebook acquiring the preeminent VR VR company and paying a lot for that, I think, is great. Like that, sh- you know, I so far, if we're, you know, in, in, at the date of acquisition, I'm like, this should be an A. Like, I, I really feel, yeah, this makes lots of sense to me. Facebook needs to be here. Uh, I think in the last couple of years of where it's ended up, I'm, I'm going to go with a C for this acquisition, um, with, you know, uh, as, as we've said before, a high level of variance. So when we revisit this acquisition in years to come, uh, very open to changing that. And I think it's very likely it will change, but like, holy crap, they, they, they bought Oculus. And then a year later, a far superior, you know, piece of technology comes out and it, it didn't seem that hard for, for someone else to pounce on it. And especially someone that was so interested in, in the Oculus, uh, uh, in its development, and then on top of that all, I really disagree with Facebook integrating VR tighter. Like I really think that that uh, I think they're potentially at risk of of not uh, making sure that they understand that Facebook needs to be a, a, a horizontal platform that that doesn't prioritize anything on Oculus. People that work at Oculus should view themselves as working on a thing that is that makes sure Facebook doesn't get unseated in the future, but ultimately. You know, Facebook is the business. Like they, they should look at their competition as Snapchat, even though they work at Oculus.
1: Yep, totally agree. Um, I, I think you've nailed it on this one. You know, the only, I'm tempted to uh, quote. Tom from uh our Tom Tom Alberg from our Amazon IPO episode himself quoting Jeff which is just such a great line in in tech that Jeff saying Bezos is saying that you know it's okay to fail at things it's not okay not to try um so I want to give Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg a ton of credit for you know trying here <laughs> and and seeing you know the potential in VR as a future medium um and pouncing on it early On the other hand, like he pounced really early and execution has not been great since then. So uh, for the same reasons as you've been, I'm going with a C on this one so far.
0: Yeah. And maybe there's a there's an abstraction here where we need to say like, huh, it turns out if you're a horizontal that needs to have scale and reach every Internet connected user in the world then maybe you don't own the hardware platform and like a risk of your business of reaching everyone is that you don't, you, you know, you don't necessarily own that direct customer relationship and that just has to be okay. Like that just has to be baked into these like mega horizontal scale models. Yep. Cause there's no way, like could Facebook have its cake and eat it too? Could, is, is there a world where the, the technology behind Oculus was so breakthrough or any, anything that they acquire is so breakthrough that it is the only hardware platform and then they breach everyone and get to own the hardware like, I just don't see a world where that's possible.
1: Well, what you're talking about is a monopoly on a direct customer relationship. And, you know, monopoly is a word that gets thrown around in tech a lot, usually in conjunction with network effects and the power there. But what's interesting about network effects, at least in the companies we've seen them expressed powerfully so far, very few, if any, of those companies actually own the, the, the means of ingress, you know, um, so to speak, you know, they own it in, in a sense in that Facebook, you know, owns the app that people, you know, come to and spend most of their time in, but they don't own the phone, you know, and, and Google owns where people find their information, but they don't own the computer or even necessarily the phone, even if it's Android. Right. I think it's just maybe hard or not, or maybe impossible. It's unlikely uh, (laughs) to believe that Facebook would be able to do that with VR in the future. Yep. Agreed. Okay. Quick follow-ups. So one, Snap. <laughs> they're still a public company. They are uh, They are
0: still a public company. They have not completely imploded. Uh, their stock is trading below IPO price.
1: Yeah. They, well, their stock is trading up from where they priced the IPO, but it is trading down from, from where, it where it closed on the first day of trading. Um, uh, sure. You know, yeah. Which is... The, the real story uh, will come after they release their first quarter and probably a couple quarters of earnings and we see whether they're able to reignite growth.
0: Yep. 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 Let's just hope that uh, everyone that bought in a very excited way on that that first day does not uh, um, become extremely pessimistic right now. And, and you know, I... I it might, whatever. We're not, we're not picking stocks. We're not forecasting. We never time the market. Blah blah blah. I think it's going to bounce back a little bit, and uh, uh, let's let's hope for Snap's sake that the people that bought in are uh, are sort of in it for the long haul and understand that too. Because I think um, one interesting point that a friend brought up the other day is tons and tons of millennials bought. Uh, bought Snap because it's the first kind of accessible IPO to them that was both large and something they were super familiar with. And people bought on emotion of, I like this company and uh, you know, you don't want to see all those people uh, you know, have a super negative negative experience and lose out. Yep. Well
1: (laughs) uh, echoes of the Facebook IPO episode. (laughs) Go listen to that one. If you haven't already, I think that is um, some of our, our best work here on acquired. Okay. Other hot take Intel acquiring mobile eye. Ben, I hear autonomous cars are a thing. Forget VR.
0: Yeah. Boy, it sure seems like it, huh? I think... Uh
1: Wait, is Mobileye a camera company? Mmm, <laughs> in a sense,
0: in a sense, I, it's more like an applied machine learning company. It's really fascinating oh, to me that uh, you know. So Mobileye a, a Israeli company. Um, they build self-driving car technology, and uh, they were bought by Intel for about fifteen billion dollars. Fifteen
1: billion dollars, yeah.
0: Y- yeah, and uh, you know uh, th- what they're really doing is v- applied machine learning. Like to me, this is a, a company that is um, their core competency is is uh, the collecting and uh, synthesizing all of the training data and building a pipeline out of that so that uh, they they can appropriately hook into all of the systems of someone else that makes the car and make that car self-driving. And it's so fascinating to me that as this market gets, you know, so much attention so quickly and it's so clear that this thing is going to happen that, you know, by pointing your your technology in the right direction and and really starting to get market traction with the makers of these these cars, like if this company was a machine learning company, they would have sold for a 15th of what they sold for.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm. Uh, I think we might have unexpectedly on this episode touched on a really, really deep theme in technology, which is this vertical versus horizontal idea. Ever since we talked about it a couple minutes ago, I can't stop thinking about it and and thinking about Intel acquiring Mobileye and like, okay, yeah, we're gonna be, you know, we're now gonna sell this horizontal platform to all the car companies to enable them to be to, to compete in the in the autonomous market contrast that with a tesla which actually used to use mobile eye components ended their relationship took it in-house as vertically integrating taking an apple-like approach um, I mean, be dude, very interesting dude, to see this how this plays out.
0: Rewind 20 years ago, like Tesla is Apple. They're like yep you totally. Know, they're vertically integrating. They're selling a you know high-end premium consumer product that's that's uh, priced and experienced in a premium way and that they, they capture a lot of value and the rest of the value is captured by um, uh, an ecosystem that is based on Intel uh, that mm-hmm. are basically component makers. And it's like you know, history repeats itself.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the question is and, and actually Ben Thompson wrote a great piece. The Smiling uh, Curve last week, I believe. The Smiling Curve about this. The question is can a combination of Intel be the Microsoft, um not just yeah. the Intel.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And c- c- could Intel be the Microsoft, right? Like can they Is that yep. what they're trying to do here is sort of like level up the stack.
1: Yep. Fascinating. Yep, yep. Fun stuff. Future episode. In-
0: Intel self-driving OS, we will see uh <laughs> See if that happens.
1: Coming soon to a podcast client near you.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Speaking of podcast clients, uh, uh, one that you can listen to on your podcast client. Uh, my carve out this week is the Pod Save America with Kara Swisher interviewing the uh, the gang from Pod Save America at South by Southwest. So Pod Save America is the the, the um, guys that used to do Keeping It 1600 on uh, the Ringer Podcast Network. Yeah. Um, after this election, moved over to start their own media company uh, called Chris. Crooked Media, Pod Save America, Pod Save the World, and other um, left-leaning, highly cynical, very funny uh, podcasts. And uh, if if you're into keeping up on on all the stuff that's going on, and you want some insights from the people that w- held those jobs in the o- Obama administration, it's a it's an awesome podcast. Like Pod Save America is incredibly entertaining, and uh, the Kara Swisher interview is phenomenal because she she might be the best interviewer alive. Like she is so awesome. good at. Yeah, like thinking about like, what do I want to know? What do I think my listeners want to know? I'm going to abuse you until I get those things out of you. And you're going to like it because I do it in such a fun and entertaining way and let you tell your story and give you the respect as the person being interviewed and the, and starting from a place of like, look, I think you're really smart and I think you have a lot to share. Why don't you share those things with us? And there's, there's this incredible mutual respect between, um, the interviewer and the interviewees. And, uh, I just, I highly recommend it.
1: We look up to her on acquired and, uh, a lot that, uh, we can learn and, and hope to keep learning as interviewers and, uh, podcast hosts and journalists in our, in our own random internet way kind of sense ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> mine uh real quick for the week uh speaking of uh left-leaning uh liberal folks great article in the new yorker this week that really made me think uh by adam gopnik who uh several years ago wrote this great book called paris to the moon which is just hilarious being in paris as i am right now uh for for the next month or two <laughs> great satire of the french and of paris but he wrote a wrote a piece called asking the question, are liberals on the wrong side of history in, uh, in the New Yorker and we'll link to it. Uh, it's really good. But one of my, one of my favorite elements of the piece of which there are several is sort of asking this question, like, what does the course of history have to say about whether, you know, what the themes are behind it, which, which reminds me of course of our podcast and you know, what we do on acquired, but it Kaepernick kind of makes the point that like because events turned out a certain way um, because Trump won the election, because Brexit happened, et cetera, or or other things deeper in history. Like the human mind is such a, you know, this is Kahneman and Tversky classic stuff is such a like storytelling machine uh, that we seize onto that narrative that like, Oh, well that was inevitable and it reflects this deep truth. But the reality is like, maybe it wasn't inevitable. Maybe, you know, it was a probabilistic thing. Maybe it was even a low probability thing that just happened to happen. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I love thinking about stuff like that. Interesting. Just because it happened, it doesn't mean it was destined to. Exactly. And it doesn't mean that like, uh, that you should create or accept a, a gospel about like the truth behind it because the truth is complicated. Yeah.
0: Sounds very cool. Well, a huge thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Zoom Info. If your company wants to supercharge its ability to find, acquire, and grow customers, while also becoming more efficient, it is a no-brainer to start using ZoomInfo. And now they're making their automated go-to-market playbook available for free for anyone to try. Head on over to acquired.fm slash ZoomInfo to see this go-to-market playbook. And when you get in touch, just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Thanks, ZoomInfo. Info. Well, that's all we've got. Listeners, thank you so much for uh, joining us, as always. If you've been a longtime subscriber, as uh, as we mentioned in the beginning, and uh, and you appreciate the show, we'd love a review on iTunes. Make it something stupid. Make it something funny. We'd, we'd love to read it on air. Um, and uh, <laughs> it helps us grow the show, get more guests, and uh, and really um, bring Acquired to more people. So yeah, feel free to, uh, if this is your first show, subscribe from your your podcast client of choice. You can shoot us email at acquiredfm at gmail.com. Go to acquired.fm. Join us in the Slack. Gosh, I don't know what more I could plug. So I'm just going to call it here. Find us in VR. Yeah. Yes. Signing off. Have a good one. Talk to you guys soon.